The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined by the political technologist, Eric Wilson, and we're going to be talking about the role of technology in the 2024 election. Eric, you are a technologist. Could you just explain firstly what that is? I believe you do most of your work for the Republican Party. That's right. I'm a, I'm a conservative and work for Republicans in this country and and conservatives across the world. My role is to make sure that candidates on our side have the most effective tools and technology to get their messages out. So the the way I say it to, to people is I don't have many opinions about what you say, but I've got a lot of opinions about how you say it and what you use to say it with. Right. And I mean, obviously, television advertising is still big business in American politics. We see it currently with Nikki Haley and Donald Trump in the primaries bombarding TV networks with huge amounts of television advertising. But that is not as powerful as it used to be. I wonder, do you think it is still useful, powerful? Would you would you advise political campaigns to use it? Well, I certainly advise people to use it. And it, it remains the most expensive line item for campaigns in the United States. Yeah, There's no other medium that reaches as many people as quickly and at once as TV advertising. Of course, that has diminished as we've had the proliferation of cable news channels. We've had the proliferation of streaming services, podcasts like this one. There are just so many things that, that people can do to fill their time with information, news, and entertainment that we don't have that luxury of everyone watching the same three TV stations, reading the same newspaper, and maybe listening to a handful of radio stations. The challenge is that key voting demographics, particularly on the, the Democratic coalition side, are watching TV less and less. So if you're confronted with key voting blocks, maybe watching TV once a week, that becomes a desperate situation where where you can't rely on TV advertising to drive a message. Unfortunately, it's still getting more expensive, less effective, right? There's just a supply and demand there, fewer eyeballs watching it, so the price goes up. Uh, but we are looking at new uh, ways to make sure that our messages go out on, yes, social media platforms like Facebook and X, but also uh, with what we call relational organizing. So friend-to-friend -friend messaging, I'm going to be a more effective advocate to you than, say, a politician. Well, the Democrats appear to have a head start on this front or have appeared to have had a head start for quite some time now. And we understand that in 2024, the Biden campaign is working very hard to work with influencers. And it's easier, I think it's fair to say, still, for the Democrats to win over influencers because 
it's not destructive to their brand generally commercially or it tends not to be as destructive to their brand commercially as it is for uh, someone, say, wanting to influence on behalf of the Republicans? Certainly the liberal ethos is the established religion in the United States in terms of media and corporate culture. So advertisers, for example, aren't going to pull their support or working with an influencer just because they support a, a Democratic candidate, for example, in the way that you might see backlash for an influencer supporting a Republican. I, I'm aware of some instances, even with influencers that my wife follows who lost significant followings when it was revealed that they donated to a Republican in 2022. So it's not just what you say on your platform, it's what you do outside of that. And so it, it does create a little bit of a, a challenge for us on the conservative side. Still, Democrats are in a little bit more of a pinch, we would say, of needing to reach those audiences because they're not able to get them on TV, on traditional news outlets. Those younger voters that they need to turn out at this election are getting their news and information from TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And so the trade-off there, of course, is you're giving up a little bit of control of what your message is. It's not your party spokesman. And so you see this a little bit with Joe Biden and his re-election campaign that he's beholden to what this sort of more progressive online base wants to see from him than what might be broadly popular with voters. Yes. Would you say that's true in particular about the situation in Gaza at the moment, where Biden seems to be being pushed quite hard exactly. to his left? And that is largely to do with you know the sort of TikTok revolution against Israel that we've seen. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the obviously the American people support Israel and, and oppose the Hamas terrorist organization. But there is this sort of warped worldview where you know, you always side with the oppressed. And I use that in air quotes. And so you are seeing that that backlash from Joe Biden and it can cause problems. The the One of the biggest challenges for uh, political campaigns in the United States that foreign audiences might not appreciate is voter turnout. So, you know, we have two choices in terms of parties and you need your side to turn up and vote. And so if young voters are not enthusiastic about voting for Joe Biden again, especially if he has this sort of unpopular opinion in in their view on the war in Gaza, then he risks having those people stay at home, not necessarily switching their support to someone else. Mm. And in this climate, this social media climate, which does sort of favor or there's a, certainly a bias towards progressive opinion algorithmically or just through sheer weight of users, the answer for Republicans would be, I think you'll say, better targeting, micro-targeting, and so on, of consumers, media consumers. How do you actually go about doing that? Well, so it's a little bit of a challenge these days. So in the wake of 2016 and 2020, platforms like Facebook put significant restrictions on our ability to target their users. We do polling every two years that consistently shows that 60% of voters are logging into Facebook every single day. So that's a key source of news and information for voters. We need to be able to reach them there. Unfortunately, Facebook has put additional restrictions on political advertisers' ability to reach those audiences. And so that's where this idea of relational organizing, building our own capacity, it's a little bit of back to the future, right? Where you have a political party that is a movement of like-minded people communicating with each other. And so it's it's different than the ad-supported 
media industry. And we also deal with platforms like TikTok, for example, or Netflix, even with their new ad supported accounts in the US that don't allow political advertisers to run messages at all, which is completely foreign to how we've been treated in more analog media formats. So how would you work with TikTok then, for instance? So with TikTok, there's a little bit of a divide, not a little bit, but a big divide between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans universally believe that the platform should be banned due to its Chinese corporate ownership and affiliation with the Chinese Communist Party. We're faced with the reality, however, that 150 million Americans are active users on TikTok. That's about half of the country. Obviously, that skews younger. That's why Democrats are joining TikTok, even while they express concerns about their policies and security concerns. So, for example, Joe Biden joined not that long ago during the Super Bowl, but they have to have a separate phone. It's not allowed to be on anyone's Wi-Fi. They're not logged into anything else. That's how worried they are about the security. And so you're not allowed to advertise. You're not even allowed to ask for money, which is another key marketing responsibility of campaigns in the United States. But you can post general messages about your policies. Similarly, you can work with other creators on the platform who have big audiences and can carry your message. And for for Democrats, that may be as simple as make sure you're registered to vote, go out and vote. There are conservative voices on TikTok, but you don't have that same concerted effort. And that's largely because necessity is the mother of invention. And so I think Republicans have a, a few more years left of using more traditional means of campaigning before they have to look at TikTok. And might those more traditional means be still pretty technologically advanced in the way that I'm thinking of text message, direct messaging, WhatsApp messaging, and so on? How effective are Republicans or and also Democrats at using these technologies? Yeah, so there are a few things that we need to do on campaigns. We try to reach the right voter with the right message on the right medium at the right moment. And that requires a lot of data. And so Campaigns up and down the ballot rely on very sophisticated, detailed voter files that include information about the individual voter, where they reside, their contact details, how they voted in the past. Have they voted in a Republican primary or a Democratic primary? Do they usually only show up at presidential elections or do they vote every year? Then we can go in and get commercial data. Are they in a high net worth zip code? Do they have certain attributes uh, associated with them related to professional licenses. All these sorts of things can be used to create models. And then we go out and do survey work where we're either texting or calling or knocking on doors and saying, what do you think about these issues? What do you think about this candidate? And then we go and apply that to voters across the voter file. This is a totally foreign concept to European and UK-based listeners who have the GDPR requirements in place. We, we don't have that here in the United States yet, and we hope it keeps that way. But we're able to learn very sophisticated things about voters. What we're starting to add with new technology is adding an additional right messenger. So making sure that if it's not the politician themselves, it could be a trusted friend, influencer, or neighbor to deliver that message. And many times that's the only way we can cut through all the algorithmic noise, the spam filters, things like that. And so text messaging is great for that. Mobile numbers are tied specifically to an individual. Most of us aren't sharing that phone number with anyone else. So we get that one-to-one relationship done properly. 
it can be really effective. Unfortunately for most American voters, it ends up being spam and a nuisance. Yeah. And how small can you be with the groups that you're targeting? I mean, are you talking sort of micro in terms of tens and twenties or? Well, so you can go as small or as broad as you'd like. The real limiting factor is how can you address that audience and can you generate the creative or the content to speak to that audience? So for example, a mail piece, you could write an individual letter to every single voter that's tailored just to them, but that would be cost prohibitive, mm. right? So you you would say, we're going to look at a universe of maybe 10,000 voters for this mail piece and 10,000 for this, and, and you've generated six different mail pieces. Text messaging, similarly, you do have a, a little bit of a challenge where you want to tailor that to individuals. We thought we were going to be able to use artificial intelligence to do that uh, this cycle. Unfortunately, one bad actor really went and ruined it for everyone with a fake Joe Biden robocall yeah. to boost Dean Phillips' primary campaign in New Hampshire. And so the regulators in this country have said you're not allowed to use artificial intelligence to generate messages over the phone system. And so we put a stop to that. Then you have programmatic advertising, which can be tailored based on where the the reader is visiting, where they're located. And so your constraint really is how much creative can you generate? And unfortunately, there's been a little bit of a cooling effect with the, the capability of AI being able to help us with that. Yes. And uh, back in 2020, it was thought that the Trump campaign had this huge data weapon that they were going to deploy. Brad Parscale, I think, was in, in charge of it. And I think it, I don't want to be dismissive of it. it. It seems like the Republicans were quite successful in targeting people through technology, but perhaps not quite as successful as the Democrats still. What did you make of the 2020 campaign? Well, my, my rule for analyzing campaigns is not everything a winning campaign did was right, not everything that a losing campaign did was wrong. So a couple of things can be true. The Trump campaign did run a more sophisticated online option with data, with targeting. Unfortunately, they ran into the post-COVID electoral reforms that happened in many states across the country where voting was more accessible by mail and in other means. And so the candidate, President Trump in this case, discouraged his supporters from taking advantage of those in ways that Democrats did. And so we did see a little bit of a gap there that made the difference in a few key states. So Republicans for the last couple of years have been working on improving our vote by mail, what we call ballot chasing strategies of making sure that people who are eligible to vote request those ballots, turn them in. And it really has changed our operations from being an election day to an election month mm. in, in a lot of ways. And so that, again, gives us a new layer of of data to target. So we do have access to this. One of the things that we're seeing the the Democrats really pioneer this cycle. Obviously, the the influencer stuff is is very important for Biden, but the Biden campaign itself is taking on a smaller role than we've typically seen campaigns. It's a smaller organization, and they are instead sitting on top of the data infrastructure. They want other groups and allies within the Democratic coalition to use to target those voters. So there's a little bit of a catching up and one side trying to seek an advantage over here. I think another thing that's really important is that Republican voters are different than Democratic voters. 
So we do have different challenges. And unfortunately, the political environment also gets a say in electoral outcomes. So it's not always about who who ran the best operation or, or who has the best data. And when it comes to Republican voters, I can see that as mail-in voting, obviously 2020, you had COVID, which vastly expanded. But generally, we are moving towards, as you suggested, more of an election month, even an election season, rather than an election day. And this affects the way campaigns operate. Uh, Republicans have talked a lot in the past about getting smarter at this, catching up with the Democrats. How do you do that? Do you, I mean, is it a case of timing? Do you have to get out your message very early to potential voters to say you need to register for your ballot now? Is it that sort of granular, if that's the word? It, it is. So the the other challenge or wrinkle to all of this is that all 50 states have totally different laws and deadlines about when one can register to vote, when they can request their ballots, whether someone's eligible. So it's created kind of this patchwork and there's experimentation within all of these states. We did a survey following the Virginia General Assembly elections last year in 2023 and found that voters were making up their minds as early as September. So when we think of the typical campaign taking place in the month of October, when you have forums and debates, most voters have already made up their mind. And in many cases, voters have already cast their ballots because they can request mail-in ballots as early as the spring, and then they're mailed out significantly ahead of time. So it does create this challenge of, of making sure that we get our allies, our voters to request their ballots, return them, and then we go chase down all the other people who are waiting till the last minute. And aside from the sort of obvious TikTok, Instagram, you know, what other platforms are you look at? I mean, is Telegram considered too controversial? Do you look at things? I mean, Truth Social is obviously uh, Trump territory. Do you use that? Yeah, so different audiences are on, on different platforms. So Telegram, for example, is more of a, a messaging platform and not really designed for the kind of marketing that campaigns need to do. So when I am advising candidates, I focus on the, the ones where the most voters are. So that really is Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. So those are the, the three where you can reach most voters at once. So we, we sort of have to do that triage. If you have enough bandwidth or support or budget, then you can go off and try a truth social strategy or a telegram strategy. The challenge there, of course, is you're speaking to the choir. And with our elections, we want to be able to make sure that we're speaking to the right people. So with truth social, very small usage, even among Republican primary voters. So your time is better invested in other platforms that are more broad, that that function more like a, a public square. The way I, I talk about it to candidates is think about Facebook and Instagram and YouTube as some of the largest events going on in your constituency uh, on a given day. And so you need to make sure that you would turn up there just like you would show up for the tomato festival or county fair or something like that. Do you fear, because of course after 2016 and Trump's surprise win, there was a lot of acrimony, concern about brainwashing through social media, concern about Russia hacking the election through Facebook and so on. Do you fear that if the Republicans are successful again using tech, all of the things that often when Democrats do it, it's sort of lauded as using the power of friendship and so on. And yet when Republicans win, you find yourselves being accused of sinister Machiavellian tactics. Unfortunately, some of that just comes with the, the territory, I'm afraid. But we are seeing a sort of 
retraction of some of the tools that were, you know, available to Obama in 2012, not available anymore. Tools that Donald Trump used in 2016, not available anymore. And so it is making it harder for campaigns to use this technology effectively, quite honestly, in the same way that a marketing agency would sell you soap or a new TV, right? And and so I, I think it's important that we have a little bit of nuance. I know that's very difficult when we're talking about politics and make a distinction between legitimate political actors. So candidates who file with our Federal Elections Commission that report their spending and fundraising and anyone out there who might want to create a fake meme or push disinformation in a campaign. We have this distinction when it comes to TV advertising, mail, uh, print, knocking at doors. And, And I think we should extend it online and make sure that we create room for political candidates to use these new town squares that are privately owned, but have replaced many of the other channels where we can reach people. And so I I really do fear that as tech companies essentially want to dodge the difficult questions of saying, do we protect speech because it's from a political candidate we disagree with, they're going to create this kind of doom loop where there are only engaged voters are going to hear from campaigns and disengaged voters aren't going to be addressed. They're not going to know an election's going on. They're not going to know when to vote. And we'll see this decline in civic participation. And that that's a bipartisan concern. Democrats are, are being cut off from these tools just as much as Republicans are. Uh, and they are concerned about it, as are we. And while it's perfectly possible to monitor, to police what campaigns are doing, what candidates are doing domestically, is there anything that can be done really about foreign actors, malign actors spreading disinformation and fake news and memes and fake videos and so on? Unfortunately, I don't think there's there's much that can be done, certainly not at the campaign level. That's not within our purview to stop that. That is a, a much higher pay grade than than where we're operating at. What we can do is make sure that we have the best, latest and greatest tools to be able to fight back to make sure that the truth wins out. So one of the concerns that I have is you're seeing increasingly companies with their artificial intelligence not allowing that to be used for political use cases. But if you know a little bit of know some tricks, you can get it to do what you want it to do. And so the the people who aren't playing by the rules have access to far more sophisticated tools and technology than than the good guys do, whether that's a good guys, uh, it could be on either side of the aisle, but we we want to make sure that we're equipped with the, the latest and greatest technology. That's how you make sure that the truth wins out. But ultimately, chaos is the, the goal for these nation state actors, and they don't care which side wins. And so we need tech companies particularly to be more careful and precise about their policies around political speech not just the topics, but who's creating it. Well, and finally, Erica, you've mentioned AI a couple of times, and it is, of course, the subject of the last year. Do you think artificial intelligence will play a role in the 2024 election? And will that role necessarily be bad? Well, as I say, in politics, we have an abundance of artificial intelligence already. But when it comes to new technologies, we are seeing some uh, sort of uses of it as a, as a gimmick, as a way to get attention from the media. You'll see people creating ads and things like that. But really where the use of AI is happening is more mundane, not as exciting, and it's not as scary. It's doing things like writing text messages, changing press releases into a blog post, analyzing 
data. We've been using machine learning and artificial intelligence in our, our modeling for years now. Uh, the new tools that we're seeing come online are just making it easier for, for everyone to take advantage of that. And so the the use of AI on campaigns is, is proliferating. It's just uh, very boring and to help people do their jobs more, more effectively, more efficiently. Eric, that's a fascinating insights into the role of technology in elections. Thank you very much for coming on to Americano. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferose, and urge you to leave a generous, kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it.